Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10, 22 and 23. Welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute and hosted... uh, found also on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm Ryan Aris, and I am joined in studio in the Knox Cellar by Nathan Oblak and Dr. Joe Boot. And it's uh, good, as always, to, uh, to be together and to have this, uh, this opportunity. Mm, absolutely. And Welcome back. In the Knox Cellar that we've now just discovered the switch for the AC after about five years yeah. of recording in here. <laughs> so we're thankful so for that. I'm thankful for that. My, uh, my ice cube is holding on a little thanks to that, to that uh, discovery. This explains why Nathan is often hot under the collar during, right. our, uh, during our podcast. Yeah, right. uh, One of the explanations. Yeah. <laughs> oh, actually, on that, let me, let me just uh, set the record straight here. Uh, nowhere in my trip to British Columbia and back for the Runner Academy. Did I drive in the wrong direction? <laughs> I don't know about that. Oh, it's on the public record. Oh, man. So you could stop telling me you're praying for me. You stop sending my wife Instagram messages. Oh, man. You know, <laughs> lamenting the fact that gas is so expensive. You know. Oh, you could have uh, set up a GoFundMe for your gas. Oh. <laughs> uh, take everything back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh. All right. Well, <laughs> with that cleared up, with, yeah. Uh, thank, yeah. Thanks for clearing that up. Now we can up. proceed. <laughs> so we're uh, we're here today to uh, to have a conversation about words, really, mm-hmm. and the uh, the word of the day uh, that uh, sort of prompted all of this is conservatism. Mm-hmm. And Joe, there there's been uh, talk from. Uh, both what uh, what we would now consider liberals and conservatives over the past, especially over the past decade, and especially since you know the election of President Trump, uh, it became a big thing to talk about a crisis in conservatism. Hmm. And we are here once again. Uh, Canada's Conservative Party is uh, facing a leadership race, mm-hmm. and we thought it would be a good idea to just to talk about what what is conservatism. Historically, there's there is or there's a popular association between Christianity and conservatism, and let's just talk about what those words mean, what those terms imply, uh, in a uh, in a present day context, and where they came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, a good place to to start, as you said, is uh, when you consider the political landscape right now in the United States. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of talk about uh, the difference between populism and conservatism. Mm-hmm. Right. There's talk of a distinction between genuine republicanism, which is, tends to be seen as the conservative wing of American politics, 
um, and rhinos who right. are Republican yeah. in name only, mm-hmm. as who are people masquerading as uh, mm-hmm. as genuine Republicans or or uh, conservatives considered to be on the conservative end. Then you've got right now, as you said, the, the leadership race in for the Conservative Party in Canada, and one of the problems, uh, and this has just been a perennial struggle over the past decade, is. Nobody really seems to know what conservatism is. So we've mm-hmm. burned. How many leaders of the Conservative Party have we burned through in the last few years? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, More than one or two. Yeah, it just uh, we seem to and, be and all very different ideologically. Absolutely yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And and uh, it's uh, it, it's sort of quite common now for people to say, well, you know, um, social conservatism uh, means you we, we can't possibly take this view or that view because. Mm-hmm. That means we won't get elected. So the so the best we can hope for is to have an economic uh, conservative yeah. or somebody who's more fiscally yeah. conservative, mm-hmm. and that's seen as well the the uh, the all that one can hope for within the Conservative Party. And then, of course, in the United Kingdom, there's a leadership race on for the Conservative Party right now because right. really, you had in um, the Prime Minister there, Boris Johnson. Um, some had likened him to um, some American politicians, uh, you know, more populist, is supposedly in his appeal. Maybe he wasn't genuinely a Brexiteer, not a genuine social conservative. And in fact, one would have to admit that uh, over the past uh, few years, it's just been in the UK from a, from a um, policy point of view, it's just been one sort of socially democratic decision after another mm-hmm. big estate raising of taxes printing lots of money um no sense of a grounding in uh what we would consider conservative traditionally conservative views and values smaller state lower taxation um concerns uh, strong concerns about law and order um and so on mm-hmm. uh and so uh, even border control so it's interesting how um, some of the things that we used to consider conservative are now regarded as populism, right? That's uh, populism, and conservatism has almost changed its meaning to mean basically a uh, an approach to fiscal policy, mm. um, which under certain cultural pressures never seems to survive anyway. Um, you know, there is really no difference between the decisions that Boris Johnson has made over the last two or three years than those that would have been made by Tony Blair. Yeah, Gordon Brown. Or uh, Gordon Brown, exactly. Um, So uh, the the sort of more controversial situation in the States, of course, is that you had in in President Trump um, somebody who was, you know, by the media dubbed a populist whose actual policies were what we would actually call conservative. Right. Mm. But of course, the the wrapping, uh, the wrapper in which those policies came, uh, made him a, a very controversial figure. You know, some of the people couldn't get past the tweets or the mm. some of the, the um, more outlandish statements or some of the the style um, are, uh, of the man. But when you actually look at concrete issues of policy, you would have to say, well, that tended in a much more conservative direction. Mm-hmm. You saying tone matters. <laughs> it seems to be these days in politics that's for sure uh 
style and tone. So, you know, and, and I know big hair seems to be a big mm. deal these days, right. although there's been a bit of a change in the hairstyle of the PM oh, in Canada. Is right. that not yeah. right? That's right. I wondered if that would come out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's just uh, reminded of a, uh, a film quote. Give me the booze, you pumpkin pie haircut freak. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> you got that from a meme, um, didn't you? I, I did. <laughs> no idea what movie that is. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I even thought about it. Some of our listeners might. <laughs> so, you know, the, the this is what causes this sort of um, uh, confusion because, mm. as Nate pointed out, you know, when you're in a, a leadership com- uh, race, as you've mm. got in these, um, well, they'll soon to be all three countries, Canada, yeah. the U.S., and the United States, but and uh, the United Kingdom, but right now in two, at least in mm. Canada and the U.K., um, all the talk is of this spectrum of these leaders. Mm, yeah. And uh, so, for example, in the UK, a very sort of high-profile leadership race for a prime minister there to, to head the Tory party, you had this lady, Penny Morden, in the middle, who's, you know, really indistinguishable mm. uh, in many respects, at the social level anyway, from a liberal, mm-hmm. a progressive. And on the other end, you had um, uh, Nigerian, actually, uh, um, British-Nigerian, um, candidate, uh, Kemi uh, Bodenak, I think her yeah, name is. Yeah, I'm not okay. exactly sure how to pronounce it, but I think it's Bodenak. Um, and, uh, but much more socially conservative, not entirely so, but much more socially conservative. And so you have these almost like these wings mm-hmm. of the of the party. I mean, when was the last time you thought about a wing in the NDP mm. uh, or a wing in the Liberal Party? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's you know, hardcore yeah. Yeah. progressivism mm-hmm. all the way. Yeah. Um, and so this, this is why I guess we could call it a crisis in conservatism because these conservative parties themselves aren't quite sure what conservatism means anymore. Mm-hmm. And even some of these conservatives that are running are, are open to saying, I'm fiscally conservative, but it stops there. That's right. Yeah. Right. Don't don't worry about me. I'm only fiscally conservative. Yeah, because that's thought to be the safe the uh, the safe posture. Mm-hmm. Um, the history of the terms that you mentioned is perhaps a a, a good uh, next stopping point. But yeah. um, uh, you know, from a I guess from the English common law uh, and our, our constitutional tradition in 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 England, Canada, and of course, really the United States, uh, we talk about a kind of Burkean. That's conservatism, right? Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one share uh, a position shared by William Wilberforce, yeah. um, uh, which emphasised um, cultural inheritance, heritage, the idea of society as much more than and simple and actually not a social contract between free, independent, rational individuals. The sort of French uh, Rousseau kind of uh, idea of radical democracy. Mm. Um, but that it, it, but that uh, you know, human society, and thereby a part of that society, of course, is human government, um, is a in a certain sense a covenant with the past and with the future. And uh, what we are doing is seeking to uh, conserve those things that we have inherited that have proven value. The whole idea of a revolutionary approach to politics, where you start again, and this, of course, is one of the distinctions now between. Um, what's left of that tradition in Britain mm. and um, places like um, Canada and, uh, and of course, you know, modeling themselves on the Nordic countries where you've got these more abstract, more recent abstracted con- uh, constitutions where 
in our case, the Charter of Right, Rights and Freedoms in Canada, becomes a kind of um, abstract idea of law, of sort of a set of legal principles, which will now be used to um, remake society in terms of the, the opinions of elite justices. Yeah, we've certainly seen that the past few years. Right, and mm -hmm. think about, for example, euthanasia and uh, mm -hmm. uh, medical assistance in dying. Mm -hmm. And how do you get to the point where Section 7 of the Charter, which concerns life and liberty, mm -hmm. is used to strike down laws against killing the elderly and the infirm by mm -hmm. the state? Um, that's law as an abstraction, whereas the, the conservative tradition that we inherited is one of a, a slow build-up of uh, uh, legal insight and uh, insight into social norms. Um, it's it built, built up over hundreds of years in, in a common law tradition um, that recognized the importance of precedent. So it builds up stone by stone, brick by brick on legal precedent. And so the idea there is that you are discovering uh, and uncovering the meaning of actually really God's law, because it, the tradition we're talking about would have been grounded in Christianity, uh, that God's laws and norms are discovered over time mm. and positivized for new situations. And this tradition, this what we call common law tradition, then builds up and gives you a society that values the past, values tradition, but isn't wooden or static. It's able to to uh, positivize uh, law for uh, legal norms for new situations. Um, so I think part of the crisis of conservatism today is that we no longer have a basis on which to say this should be conserved and this should be discarded. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, just the notion of conserving something, and I think we've talked about this a bit before mm -hmm. on the show in the past, mm -hmm is that just the idea of conserving something because it's there uh, or because it's been there at right. some point isn't sufficient justification to retain something in our family life or in our business life and, and of course, mm -hmm. therefore, in uh, the life of society and in the life of the state. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, when you lose that, uh, what we might call religious basis of, of uh, what we conserve, what we would, as Christians, would, consider the kingdom of God, um, then the wrong things get discarded mm -hmm. and, and some of the wrong things can be retained too. Yeah. So, and this is, uh, there's actually, uh, we were talking about this beforehand and just observed that there's a, a biblical sort of example of this. And the term, uh, would be Pharisaism mm -hmm. where, uh, Paul writes to the Galatians that, he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his peers. He says, so zealous was I for God's word? No, for the traditions of his fathers. Right. Not to, you know, to hold on to them, not because they are biblical, not because they're uh, right or godly or mm. helpful to, to anyone, but because that's the way that we've always done it. And that's the way we're going to keep doing it. Exactly. Right. So... Uh, and it's interesting that you raise that particular text because Paul elsewhere speaks much more positively about tradition. Yes. When he's talking right. to Timothy mm -hmm. and saying, you know, hold on to the traditions that mm. had been handed down to you. So yeah. he's saying, here, here is the right tradition. Here's the godly tradition. Here's the scriptural tradition. Mm -hmm. Hold on to that. And of course, the exhortation to, you know, hold on to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Yes. Right. So you've got this in Paul a positive 
application of tradition and then you've got a negative implication so mm. exactly that it what is the criteria for what we preserve or discard and this is why conservatism in itself cannot help or deliver anybody mm. uh, and it's why conservatism has lost its way mm. in the last 50 years or so mm. um, with a few uh, exceptions so yeah, i think we could say ronald reagan in there and uh, um mm-hmm. uh, margaret thatcher, thatcher. Yep. um and there's probably an equivalent somewhere in canada although i'm struggling <laughs> just off the top of my head uh but <laughs> john deefen maybe <laughs> maybe um let that hang in the air yeah. <laughs> so so you have uh, uh some exceptions but in general it's mm-hmm. been this 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 loss of the criteria which right. is grounded in scripture and of course we get this basic print the principle of the kingdom of god is that there is both constancy and change that is part of God's agenda for the world. Mm-hmm. Well, and why would there be pushback? They don't know what they're pushing back to. Right. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. How would how'd you, you... Well, we made this observation uh, just as we were chatting before the show, but how is it that um, the conservatives, when they, the parties, when they get elected mm-hmm. in more recent decades, almost uniformly fail to uh, take back ground right yeah mm-hmm. it's almost always that all they manage to accomplish is to push the pause button on the decline right. on the radical leftward drift right. i mean this has been the story since the french revolution of course is that there are only three types of um uh, political figures or, or political positions now one is you're radically on board with the revolution and it must happen instantly mm. uh, the second is that uh you are um you're on board with the revolution but you think it should happen slowly mm-hmm. Um, or third, you're you're not really on board uh, with the um, with the with the revolution, uh, but you don't really know how to stop it. Mm-hmm, um, right. And uh, all, all you can do is appeal to um, the the past and to some traditions here and there, in the hope that some people will feel enough connectedness with them that they'll want to retain some of them. But the but in every case, the pull is always leftward in the direction of radicalism, mm-hmm. radical uh, progressivism. So the pause button gets pushed. And I think this... The, the movement, there's no no conservative, no movement in the conservative right. direction. In one uh, that's direction. a good way of putting yeah. it. There's, there's there's no conservative movement. Mm-hmm. There's conservatism, yeah. but there's no conservative movement. And it's because we've lost the, the, the root principle of the kingdom of God, uh, which involves constancy and change. There is always the principle of constancy at work that we might call the conservative principle, right? Which is that because this is God's creation and it's governed by his law word uh, and his uh, normative law structure for all of creation, there is an abiding constancy. And we sometimes given the illustration of, you know, if you look outside right now and you, you spot the nearest tree, maybe your favorite tree, you watch that tree change through the seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's never static. It's never the same. Uh, it's always changing. It's growing. Uh, its shape is shifting. Its its branches are expanding. Uh, the leaves are either on or changing color, or they're off the tree on the floor. But it is still that tree. You recognize it as that's my favorite tree. It's still the same tree. So there is constancy, something that makes it that tree. But there's the reality of 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 abiding change it's kind of this paradox of the constancy of change (laughs) Mm -hmm. so there is so you can only identify change on the basis of something being constant and so uh 
A truly kingdom principle for conservatism means the maintenance of God's order, but recognizing that as time moves on and as culture develops and so forth, there are always new changing circumstances into which we can creatively apply God's laws and norms, God's word into every area of life. And that means that for a great conservative like William Wilberforce, the issue of the institution of slavery had to change. It was an inherited tradition, at least from uh, from Enlightenment humanism, um, and it had to change. Uh, and, uh, you know, we see actually, as you look at the development of, um, of our society, especially since the Reformation, um, didn't always go right, but that's how you can tell when, a, when, a, when, when we're making progress or whether we're retrogressive is you can only measure progress in terms of a, a canon, like a measure space, a rule, right? Yeah. You can only... Something static. So, yeah, yeah, something that is constant that we can say, we have made progress mm -hmm. in terms of this, or right. we are retrogressive in terms of something else. Mm -hmm. The modern issue of progressivism, of what we might call social democracy today, and of which so, so dominates the political landscape in the West, is that... There is no benchmark. Mm -hmm. Pro progress is whatever the elite say that it is in terms of their utopian ideals. Mm -hmm. um, and when you drill down into those utopian ideals, they are a bit like the ideals of Marx and Lenin and so on, which is, well, there's going to be this ideal society of love and kindness and peace and egalitarian equality. Mm -hmm. We don't know how we're going to get there. We don't know actually what it looks like. We don't know how it's going to run. We don't know how it's going to work. But that's where we're going if we can overturn every standard and, and, and norm and law that God has established. If we can overthrow all of that, then we will get there. And, of course, that is a subject we've talked about many times, utopia. Mm. It really is no place. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, uh, it's the mythological, uh, it's, the, it's the aping of the kingdom of God into sort of man's kingdom a scientific kingdom, a humanitarian kingdom, um, but it's not the kingdom of God. Mm. Um, and so I think fundamentally this is the, this is the crisis of conservatism today. And mm. until we recover a, the religious root of the kingdom of God, mm -hmm. we're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of, uh, speaking of religious roots and speaking of uh, utopian ideals, uh, there are there are self-identifying Christian socialists. There are Christians who think inconsistently or shallowly and who happen to line up with popular conceptions of of good and right. But in the main, we we tend to associate uh, conservatism with Christianity. Mm -hmm. uh, is that uh, is that normal right good is or can you mm. just comment on that state of affairs yeah that is uh that's i think we can say yes and no mm -hmm. it's one of those uh it's one of those situations um on the whole um yes we can associate conservatism uh with christianity um I mean, look, the reality is, as you look back over the last 150 years, I mean, Karl Marx, for start off, at the, the root of socialism was an atheist and a, and, uh, a materialist. Mm -hmm. And um, in, in almost all of its brands, socialism has been fundamentally anti-Christian in, uh, in, in its 
basic premises. Um, you know, the 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 equal sharing of misery is not a principle mm. of God's word. Um, One of my favourite uh, Churchill quotes. Yeah, mm. <laughs> and uh, the it, it's it's it is basically premised on a lie that there are there that that there are not hierarchical structures and that in fact there aren't god-given differences that there, that there aren't really principles of risk and reward um uh, and of uh, familial uh, responsibility and accountability socialism in the end looks for the integrating concept of life not in the kingdom of god but in the organization and the planning the social planning of the state to bring about a a, a just order um, and so, of course, we can have a very extended discussion about the nature of socialism. And of course, there are different brands. Some socialists would 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 uh, vociferously deny that they're communists, mm-hmm. right? Uh, or that they are hardcore Marxists. And of course, there is soft socialism and there's hardcore socialism. Um, but they can listen to our interview with Jonathan Wellam to explain how that's really just uh, shades of the same thing. Precisely, it's shades of red. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it doesn't find its root in Christianity. I mean, the, the attempts to find um, a, a, a justification for socialism in the Bible are um, impoverished at best, absurd at worst, mm. and do great violence to, to the Bible. Um, the, uh, I think one of the, one of the, the, the challenges is that uh, people will tend to think, well, surely socialism is more caring. I mean, isn't uh, we? I think we dealt a little bit with this last week in our discussion with Jonathan Wellam. Um, uh, when you, when you, uh, when, I mean, ultimately, I think socialism is rooted in a kind of covetousness. It's uh, it's larceny in the heart, mm. um, and it's a desire to say, well, we're going to take from the haves and give it to the give it to the have-nots, and we're going to coerce that. So, Indiscriminately. <laughs> yes, uh, and so these, you know, soft socialism would be, you know, progressive taxation, um, especially quite mm-hmm. steeply progressive taxation. Yeah. You don't need the authoritarian figure in soft socialism. You don't need the dictator. You just have a structure whereby uh, the the provident and those who have saved or worked hard or those who've just simply been gifted by the Lord in a given way um, or have inherited, are steadily stripped of their wealth. Um, and uh, we just can't find a biblically justification for this. Two of the commandments of God, two of the, two of the commands of the Decalogue are concerned with covetousness and theft, mm-hmm. private property. Yeah. Um, and the notion that, and I've, I often give this illustration to young people, you know, if we had come into this podcast studio today and and Ryan, you'd notice that Nathan's wallet was looking incredibly fat today because he's mm-hmm. paid so well. Mm-hmm. And um, you were thinking, well, <laughs> Man, you know, this is uh, a hypothetical <laughs> situation, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Just go with it. <laughs> you set up that uh, set up that gas Kickstarter, <laughs> <laughs> and you thought, well, you know, Nathan is looking very wealthy today, and and, I, and I've had a I've had a tough month trying to uh, to, to meet uh, Trudeau's um, uh, trying to, to counter Trudeau's energy policy. Yeah. Um, then, um, uh, so I'm just going to help myself to a hundred bucks out of Nathan's wallet because he has more than you. 
uh, we'd all agree that's theft. Mm-hmm. And nobody would disagree if you help yourself to the contents of his wallet when he wasn't looking. If the state does it, we call it social justice. Yeah, right. that's, that's socialism. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the difficulty is when people feel that somehow uh, the responsibility of the state is to execute kindness and love and mercy to everyone, whereas God requires that actually love and mercy and kindness to those who are in need is something that is voluntary, that, it's, that, it, that, it, that it is not an aspect of justice in the sense a legal requirement, but it's something that is fundamentally moral. You know, the, the heart of the moral aspect of our lives is the command to love God and neighbor. And um, that will mean that we are concerned for the needy and the poor. And people look at conservatism, and some people will, and say, well, it's not, uh, it's not very Christian because it's concerned with uh, tribution mm-hmm. or retribution. It's concerned with a harmony of public legal interests fundamentally and not the redistribution of wealth. And it's actually trying to create a situation where people are equal before the law, have equality before the law, which is actually the biblical principle that comes right out of uh, Exodus. There's to be one law for the stranger and the alien and the resident among you. Um, And under that rule of law, there is thereby an equal opportunity, but there is not an equal outcome. And there can never be an equal outcome. And socialism, uh, every form of leftism, tends to believe that if enough elites tinker with the apparatus of the state to manipulate life, to manipulate law, to manipulate the economy, that they will be able to create a situation where there is an equal outcome for all people, or at least uh, something that approximates better, a more equal outcome. Denying that we're all created differently. Precisely. Mm. It becomes a denial fundamentally of 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 the created differences and of the way that we respond, that we exercise responsibility. Uh, We all have a response ability given by God. And so God does want there to be equality before his law so that we have an equal opportunity to be obedient and faithful. Mm. But we're not all born into the same circumstances. Mm. And there's no way to change that Mm. unless you create the communist society. And the Mm. communist society doesn't change that. It doesn't fix it. It just Mm. creates a new elite and asset strips uh, the people and creates total misery. And of course, it creates poverty. And this has been seen time and time and time again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's impossible for a human being to, any a single human being, to possibly comprehend the complexity of the economic aspect of our lives right. and how it works. Um, so this attempt to tinker with and to manipulate, and of course, with Marx and Engels, they saw the root of e- all evil in the uh, of private property in the family. And so their goal was the destruction of the family. Mm-hmm. And that, how is that, is that not the very thing that we're seeing today? I mean, that is the fundamental drive of modern progressivism, mm-hmm. is the destruction of the family, of the destruction of the sexual order, because that then can reorder and inevitably reorders the economic order, because it's through the family that you ultimately receive welfare, that you learn about property. It's the family that God gives to the family property in Scripture. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to the state. So uh, <clears throat> these are the issues that distinguish, as you say, the different shades of socialism with conservatism. So coming back to that question of 
is conservatism. It tends to be associated with Christianity more than socialism. Um, yes, that that is true. And um, it's also accurate. Where it fails, where it falls down, is where is in the area that we've just talked about, which is when conservatism becomes disconnected from its Christian roots and ceases to be rooted both in God, his law, and uh, an idea of the kingdom of God. And of course, Marx, Karl Marx recognized this. He recognized that the Christian view of history involved progress, from one state of affairs to another. It was creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Uh, and that therefore history wasn't cyclic, but it was moving towards something. Um, and conservatism, when it recognizes it's moving towards something, is always going to be looking not just to conserve what is, but identify areas where we need to positivize God's laws and norms more accurately, more faithfully in changing circumstances. Marx and and uh, uh, all his descendants, fundamentally, it's it, there is a false eschatology there. It also involves progress, but it involves progress not in terms of God's order, but man's humanitarian order, where he is going to control and man, and manipulate. And basically, it's a statist. It's in the end inevitably totalitarian. You can only uh, go after this idea of equalization in one way or another if you can control the various elements and aspects of society in toto and uh, manipulate them, mm. um, which, of course, is inherently impossible, but it won't stop people making the attempt. It doesn't mm -hmm. stop politicians making the attempt to control all of these areas. And that's It when sounds it, good, doesn't it? It does sound good. You know, uh, we'll, we'll manipulate currency, we'll manipulate this, we'll manipulate that. And then we can bring about this order. And it always, well, where are we now? We're in an, an inflationary situation mm -hmm. uh, where people are struggling, oftentimes now having to choose between uh, food on the table and gas in the, in, in the fuel tank mm -hmm. or warming their house or cooling their uh, property um, and uh, food on the table um, because of man thinking that if he controls all the levers, uh, he can lock down all of society, he can... Uh, give print money and uh, a bit, uh, billions of dollars, just pump it into the economy, uh, that he can shut down uh, churches, uh, that he can mm. save humanity from viruses by imposing this, that, and the other. And what's been the result? Destruction of people's economic life, destruction of people's mental well-being. This is the reductionism that's on display within progressivism within socialism and its various brands. So yes, conservatism uh, is the inherently more Christian posture, but the, 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 the yes and no part is, as I've said, if it's disconnected from Christianity, the notion that somehow a fiscal conservatism can survive without a social conservatism right. that is bound to God's laws and norms and order is a myth, and we've seen that time and again. Just look at um, British politics today under under Boris Johnson, and actually that's why there's all this pushback right now, and there, there's a desire for a new leader, is that mm -hmm. there's the general feeling among conservatives that he's not a conservative. Mm. Um, and uh, this, is the, this is the fundamental mm -hmm. crisis we're facing in conservatism. If you surrender the, the social basis, the... Uh, the fundamental religious basis of conservatism. It cannot survive in the name of a minimal 
fiscal conservatism because just just take this one example without social conservatism the family is destroyed without the family private property private capital private ownership is steadily undermined and the very foundation of free markets and a society in which progress can be made economically uh is the free family is the family hmm. destroy that socially and economic conservatism cannot survive yeah hmm. something you mentioned there joe um just reminded me of how when you often talk about totalitarianism you describe it as you know the state treating all the various aspects of life as lesser parts of the whole the state being the whole i feel like conservative is conservatives um especially in Canada, have fallen victim to that way of thinking. Um, maybe you can comment on that a little bit. Yeah, I think that's true at the provincial level. Mm -hmm. uh, even among mm -hmm. professing Christian conservatives um, uh, in Ontario um, and beyond. Mm -hmm. I think that's true. Um, it's, become yeah. the, the, it's become almost the basic assumption now across the parties, in, certainly in Canada, and not so much in the US or the UK. I mean, some of the... Um, the ministers who are running for leadership of uh, the Conservative Party in Britain are running distinctly on the idea of low taxes, smaller states, and so on. They get that, uh, but not very many. Yeah. Uh, and uh, here in Canada, the basically the, the, the functional assumption is, yes, the state is the arbiter, is right. the organizer, mm -hmm. is, the, is the totalizing concept. It's, mm -hmm. And that comes right the out authority. of... It's the fundamental authority. Right. It, it, it does not recognize fear sovereignty, mm. which we talk about frequently. It's our, one of our favorite drums. Mm. Um, the, the family, the church, economic life, schools, and so on. Um, these may function within a given territory. The state is a unified territory. It's a legal order over a given territory. Although they, these businesses and churches and schools reside on a given territory, that does not make them parts of the state. Mm. Uh, they are not lesser parts of that greater whole. That would be a radical violation of the, of the very the law sphere that governs the life of the family or the life of the church or the life of the business or the life of the school. So um, in terms of the, it, it, we can talk about maybe the external and the internal reality where externally my family life touches the life of the state uh, the state will have something to say. Mm -hmm. uh, if I'm, if my family is in dodging taxes, yeah. uh, or is um, uh, involved in criminal activity, if I'm part of a mafia, uh, then the, the state is going to have um, something to say. If, if. <laughs> <laughs> but from the internal law of the of the life of the family, the state has no right to intrude. <laughs> Same in the life of the church, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So. Uh, where the, the this is fundamentally that totalitarianism, as we've said often, is not where's the big scary dictator mm -hmm. who we need to identify, and there's a totalitarian totalitarian society. Those almost always involve that, but the totalitarian society is one that treats all the parts of society uh, as lesser parts of the greater whole of the state, rather than saying. This is God's creation. Mm -hmm. The only integrating concept is his kingdom. And all the various parts are aspects of the kingdom of God. 
and therefore must be subject to the Lord Jesus Christ and must respect the boundaries of their jurisdiction, of their sphere of authority. That's what preserves freedom in a society. And um, a genuine conservatism will seek to recognize that. It will, even if it doesn't use those terms because it doesn't have the philosophical language, mm-hmm. um, a conservatism will be concerned to reduce the size of the state, mm. to minimize the state, yeah. to reduce... Um, the level of taxation on the individual, to free the family and the business from excessive regulation and so on and so forth. Right, and the bounds of authority. That's what these politicians are really struggling with, isn't it? (laughs) Even the Christian ones. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's almost like a drug. Mm -hmm. It really is. It's almost as though they get into positions of power and authority and they get used to this idea that they are overlords. They're not servants. They're not there to minister but they are somehow our overlords and our masters, and that is not the biblical vision or the Christian vision, the Christian vision of political life at all. Mm-hmm. We, we inherited these terms, the very terms themselves, ministers, mm-hmm. public servants, dictates that these are an, an office, a particular office. It's a trust given by God, and of course, in our societies, uh, at the behest and the consent of the people being governed, that these are offices held in trust uh, in which to serve others. Uh, But instead, it's become this idea that they are rulers because they have an an objective, an ideal society that they want to bring about and impose. It's kind of a, it's both a scientific, a therapeutic, a humanitarian vision of what um, uh, life should actually be like. And sadly, I mean, if we push back against that at times, it's, it's the church that levels accusations of acting unchristian or uncharitable or what have you. Mm-hmm. Or about getting mixed up in politics. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course, now it's impossible not to be mixed up in politics the way that the modern uh, political uh, life is defined. Because if it's involved in everything, yeah. then the only way not to get involved in it is to get out of everything That's right. and not mm-hmm. live. Yeah, so, so it's, a, uh, it's a compelling strategy you've articulated. <laughs> Sorry, not live in any area of life. I mean, one, one, of the, one of the things we frequently hear as an objection to conservatism is uh, you can't legislate morality. That's right. Mm-hmm. right? You can't, uh, you know, this is um, the, cons- the, the conservative's problem, especially social conservatism, is you can't tell people how to live, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you can't make people good. You can't legislate people into being good. Into being good. Yeah. And of course, there is a kernel of truth in this. Right. Right? Yeah. So it takes something which is, has a, an element of truth that exaggerates it then to the point of saying that there is no connection between the legal order mm-hmm. and the moral order. Uh, that there's no connection between love and justice. Um, it was um, uh, Herman Doyerverd who pointed out that uh, all legal phenomena are concerned with the expression of the legal principle of retribution or tribution, we might say. That's what makes certain phenomena legal, right? So there is a there's the recognition that the in the le- the public legal order there's an obligation and responsibility in the area of the state to uh, establish um, uh, in the external side of human relationships, that's, that's what the, the public legal order is concerned with, a harmony of public legal interest, and to make sure that retribution or tribution um, 
is central. So the difference, and uh, uh, this is actually pretty helpful from um, Hebden Taylor in his book. Uh, he's actually an Anglican, an English Anglican who was hmm. reformational in his thinking. Um, We've met he, a couple of those lately. Yes, we have, yeah. Uh, he says that we could define the difference as follows between law and uh, morality, that uh, law regulates the, and I'm quoting, the external relationships between men uh, of necessity generalizing in doing so, whereas moral norms appeal to man in his individuality and bear upon his personal relationships with others. So legal norms are principles for public order, ethical norms uh, govern men's personal lives. And actually you can see that kind of distinction implicit in the Sermon on the Mount, mm. where Jesus is talking about turning the other cheek and so on, and then people conflate the moral and the legal norms and they say, well, you can't possibly have a retributive justice system. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Uh, and of course, the very that would be Jesus teaching that the legal order and and the court system must collapse and give way to, uh, you know, a utopian kind of society. Um, but of course, this is to conflate the the, the two realms. Um, the Christian view um, is that uh, mercy tempers justice. Um, Mercy and justice, love and justice meet together and kiss one another. They're different orders. They, they, they enjoy a sphere of sovereignty. The juridical legal order about public justice, harmony of legal interests, um, is about tribution, retribution. The moral order is fundamentally about love to one's neighbor. But they are bound together, certainly Doiverd would say, in an unbreakable coherence. And the moral order opens up the area of jurisprudence. It opens it to recognize uh, that um, the intentions of, that people have uh, in their activities with other people are actually important. Um, is, the, is a crime premeditated? Mm -hmm. uh, is it a crime of, 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 of passion because, you know, love for a spouse is involved and yeah. great jealousy is involved or some, or, 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 or some other motivating factor? Yeah. So that it's not or was purely it wooden, accidental or negligent. Precisely. Yeah. So um, the 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 tendency, interestingly, of our own age, it has has been to c c conflate these two, collapse them completely into one. Uh, and uh, uh, this is the way C.S. Lewis, I think, beautifully put it, where he he says that there's a sh there's a shift really been to say that crime in the public in the public area now it, with this humanitarian idea. Um, is now seen more as disease to be cured. Mm. Uh, it's a therapeutic idea. Um, we've talked about this before, the whole idea of the penitentiary. With the, mm -hmm. We've got to make people penitent. Um, and somehow the only, the, 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 the basic factor is, can we cure this person at a time, possibly deter others from behaving in the same way, rather than any principle, dural principle of justice? Right, that it's purely about uh, humanitarianism uh, or, or mercilessly, falsely conceived. And this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, the humanitarian theory wants simply to abolish justice and substitute mercy for it. This means you start being kind to people before you have considered their rights and then force upon them supposed kindnesses which no one but you will recognize as kindnesses <laughs> and which the recipient will feel as abominable cruelties. You have overshot the mark. 
now he doesn't uh, he doesn't use the language of sphere sovereignty, but that's precisely what he is implied here. Trudeau mm. thinks he's so kind. He does. Yeah. It's exactly what I'm thinking yeah. about, Nathan. Mm-hmm. You know, mercy. Lewis goes on. Mercy detached from justice grows unmerciful. Mm-hmm. This is an important paradox. As there are plant as there are plants which will flourish only in mountain soil, so it appears that mercy will flower only when it grows in the crannies of the rock of justice. Transplanted to the marshlands of mere humanitarianism, it becomes a man-eating weed, all the more dangerous because it's still called by the same name as the mountain variety. And that's what's happened in our culture with the whole idea of social justice and within progressivism as we think about society, as we think about crime and punishment, as we think about um, morality and legislation, is that... um, We've lost this dural sense that there, that the, the state has a particular duty in the area of public justice, uh, that it isn't there to uh, to tell me whether I'm being covetous or unkind or nasty over there and this, that, and the other, and interfering like a like a busybody nanny yeah. into every aspect of our lives to say, well, we're going to make you kind because we're going to take away from you and give it to somebody else, mm-hmm. and pass laws of so-called kindness. And we're going to be so kind to you. We're going to make you love your neighbor. You're going to receive an injection, Ryan. In fact, you're going to receive many injections because we're going to f- coerce you to love your neighbor in the way that we've defined love. Are they free? I think they are, actually. <laughs> well, well, they're not really free because the taxpayer's paying for them, uh, but yeah. with, with printed money that uh, our children will have to pay off. But you can see this. Are you saying our healthcare isn't free in Ontario? <laughs> well, there's another thing, right? Tommy Douglas. There you have in Canada in the name of Christianity. That's right. You had the imposition of the state saying, well, we, we are actually the agency of health. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what you were talking about, Nathan, with yep. totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, the, even the motive may be good. But the imposition of um, socialized health onto people um, fundamentally is a conflation of these spheres mm-hmm. of authority. Mm. Um, the idea that you should be coerced to pay for somebody's abortion or euthanasia or sex change surgery, or that I should be coerced to pay for somebody's obesity, yeah. mm-hmm. is not justice. And, uh, but it was done in the name of love and justice. So what happens is you, there's a substitution. If you, if you take away God's word as the foundation, you substitute it for um, so some other structuration of man's own devising, and that becomes then the point of departure. And let me, let me conclude um, with this. When we ask them, well, what is the role of morality as the state in this dural sphere of, of retribution sort of opens itself up, deepens its, uh, it, itself in terms of the moral principle uh, this is the way Taylor puts it. Again, let me quote him, because I think this is just very, very helpful. The state uh, should not interfere in the internal law and morality of the family, the school, the church, science or industry. The internal law and morality of these social spheres is beyond the jurisdiction of the state. So we don't want a busybody state saying, hey, Nathan, you're being so selfish today. This is the way you're going to behave and this is how we're going to coerce you to do that. Um But all of these relationships do have an external as well as internal legal function. So um, the state's task is not fundamentally to promote anybody's personal morality, right? But But he goes on to say, and I quote, within any nation, there must be one public legal order. 
You can't have a nation without one publicly. You can't have Sharia law and humanitarian law and Christian law all coalescing together as mm -hmm. though you can have many gods mm -hmm. within that legal order. So he says there can only be one public legal order. There may well be a plurality of moralities in a society, just as there are today a plurality of creeds. So, and I'm just pausing in the quotation here. So you might have Hindus and Muslims and humanists and secularists and Christians within a given order, but there cannot be a plurality of public legal orders. You can have a plurality of structures, family, church, etc., etc., sphere sovereignty, but not a plurality of legal orders. You can even recognize within society that there are a plurality of creeds. And it's not our job as Christians to say, you will not be a Muslim, mm -hmm. you will not be an atheist, and we're going to coerce you to be something else. That's not our task. What Taylor says is only that type of morality must be prohibited. So this is where the 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 um the connection, the 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 coherence of the juridical and the moral come together, whether the legal and the moral are in this unbreakable coherence. He says only that, that type of morality must be prohibited, which destroys this public legal order. So if where the legal order is subject to destruction, that's where the issue of morality comes in into the because the, the state doesn't suddenly stop functioning in the moral aspect of reality. And he gives the examples of thuggery and murder. And interestingly enough, this is Hebden Taylor, an Anglican priest in England in the middle part of the 20th century. So he talks about thuggery, murder and homosexuality. Interestingly enough, now think how offensive that would be today, even to most Christians, mm -hmm. to suggest that the state should prohibit um, homosexuality. And of course, there are others, things I would add, rape, mm -hmm. um, uh, theft, um, the public incitement to idolatry, yep. to, subvert the pub, to subvert the legal order. This is where what we might call the moral has a bearing as the juridical aspect opens itself out opens itself up because no state can be morally neutral. The state's concern with the legal order is to say what core moral issues are a threat to the public legal order, are a fundamental threat. And this is why the Bible uh, distinguishes between sins and crimes. Right. Right. Not all immorality is a crime. Not all immorality is a direct affront to the authority and existence of the public legal order mm -hmm. but some sins are yeah and so the bible is fundamentally concerned with uh those that the kind of immorality which is a direct threat to the maintenance of the public legal order and that's what conservatism is fundamentally concerned with that's what that's what genuine a christian conservatism is concerned with not simply how can we make sure gdp is up and everybody's making a certain amount of money uh, as though that's the be-all and end-all of conservatism. No, uh, that kind of conservative, the fiscal conservatism can't, conservatism can only survive when the public legal order under one rule of law is maintained. Mm. And that is why we have a crisis in conservatism today because we have thought that or believed or been deluded into thinking that we can maintain prosperity and freedom whilst the public legal order collapses under the weight of um, immorality.
and that those other things are just simply not important. And so the, the, the mistake that I think many Christians, many genuine Christians make, very well-meaning Christians, with this law morality question, is they, whilst we can recognize that it's not the state's job to be a busybody and regulate everybody's moral behavior in every area of life, they, they lose the religious root. They neglect the religious root of all of life. They, the, the, the religious root fundamentally of our direction before God, true mm-hmm. worship or apostasy, directly affects all of these spheres of life. And the state cannot be religiously neutral. It cannot. Its choice of a legal order is a religious choice. So, yes, we don't um, legislate morality. Laws do not make people morally loving and good. But it does restrain wickedness and evil. And it maintains the public legal order. That is the Christian view. And I would say of all the political choices we have in the West, conservatism is the one that historically has sought to do that. Mm. Yeah, well, that's a, uh, that's a good good exhortation. That was a really clarifying conversation for me personally, Joe. Thanks for, for being here. It was clarifying for me. Good. I, well, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, from all of us here at the Ezra Institute, this has been another episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. We remind you that from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory, and we'll look forward to being with you again next week.